leadership can be the single biggest reason for the success or failure of an organization. Investing in leadership training is often a nice to have or simply doesn't fit with your training budget. At Leader Connect, we believe we've developed a cost-effective yet powerful method for providing you with business-wide leadership training that won't blow your budget. Our platform allows you to access world-class leadership wisdom that you can use for group or individual professional development in your company. Pop over to our website now, leader-connect.co.uk and scroll down to team subscriptions for more information. Alex Staniforth is just 25 but has already amassed a lifetime of wisdom. Both his first and second attempts at summiting Everest were cut short by the two biggest natural disasters to hit Nepal in recent years. Undeterred, he's gone on to be an adventurer, ultra runner, charity CEO and motivational speaker. In this episode, we uncover what young people look for in a leader, how to build and sustain resilience, where to find inspiration when the going gets tough and how to set goals and achieve them. As I always do, whenever I start the podcast, I always get people to sum up their life stories in 60 seconds. Alex, could you do that for us? Thanks, Sarah. I'll certainly do my best. I've never taken the un- unconventional path. I'm no stranger to overcoming challenges. Um, I'm an adventurer, a motivational speaker, an author, ambassador, ultra runner, and a uh, founder of a mental health charity. And for me, I've been using the outdoors as a way of overcoming personal challenges and now using that to help other people to overcome theirs. And you have done so much in such a short space of time because you are only 25. And over the process of this podcast, I'd like to dive into some of those things, um, understanding um, you know, how you've achieved so much in such a short space of time. Um, I'm now 44 and I always felt that I kind of understood what it was like to be a young person today, um, but I suspect that I don't. So I would like to touch on a little bit of that as well. I believe very strongly in the fact that the leader or, or us, whether or not you're in leadership or not, you need to have a clear and compelling purpose for your life. Do you know what yours is? I think it's always changing and it has, well, it has evolved and changed so far. Um, I break my life into three areas, which are, you know, work, charity and challenge. And I have a mission statement for all three of those. But I think the overarching theme is around, you know, leaving something bigger behind and helping other people to not settle for base camp, you know, to achieve their full potential and overcome the challenges and the barriers to getting there, uh, regardless of whatever challenges they may be facing in their life like I did. Can you tell us some of the, what I might think are quite crazy things that you have done in your life challenge-wise so that we can set the scene? I guess I'm best known for um, two disasters on Everest, really. When I was um, 18, I went out to Everest for the first time, trying to reach the summit. Uh, I would have been the second youngest Brit. Um, I mean, obviously, just getting there is the hardest part. I mean, I've had to raise over £35,000 in corporate sponsorship to actually get a place on an expedition. Got to base camp and then a huge avalanche, tragically killed 16 people. So we had to pack up and go home. Went back the following year, took the opportunity and adversity and... This time we were on the mountain at just below Camp One when the earthquake hit Nepal. So that redefined my whole idea of success and, and failure and um, completely changed my path. But I guess getting to Everest and actually my experiences and being in the two biggest disasters in Everest history, you know, surviving an avalanche at 6,000 metres, it's kind of been the, the backbone of my story. 
I guess since then, really, I, I found I've been able to redefine my idea of success is so much more than just the summit. It's about the process and about the journey. I went out to Choa in 2016, trying to climb the sixth highest peak in the world. Didn't reach the top of that either. And that's when I kind of asked myself a question, you know, am I making my biggest difference, my biggest contribution in this tent halfway across the world? You know, had I been in that tent at Everest the year before, which was, you know, buried under a foot of ice, snow and rock, what would I have left behind? And I've since found that same challenge, that same goal through UK-based endurance challenges. So in 2017, I climbed all 100 county tops in the UK, uh, 5,000 miles of cycling, running, walking, kayaking, 72 days. Um, that raised about £25,000 for young minds. Um, I released my first book, Ice Fall, in 2016 after Everest um, 2015, which obviously tells the journey so far started speaking around the same sort of time you know Everest disasters actually gave me a pretty unique story and insight to share and 2018 um I guess I switched my focus more into running um writing about that second challenge released my second book Another Peak in 2019 started a charity called Mind of the Mountains in 2020 which is all around restoring mental health through nature you know based on my own experiences really just trying to give people what it had given me it never feels like enough to me, but that's the drive, which I guess I'll come on to later. 2020, I probably took on my biggest, most ridiculous challenge yet, which was um, the National Free Peaks, but not in the usual way of climbing Ben Nevis, Garfield, Pike and Snowden, but actually running the entire distance between them, um, 452 miles in nine and a half days, which broke me in more ways than I could ever even realise possible. But since then, really, my focus has been more around creating this kind of natural health service through Mind of the Mountains. You know, that's become my legacy and never anticipated I'd be doing that so young. But the time and the demand is now. I think that the golden thread through all of those amazing things is this level of resilience that you clearly have. Now, I don't know whether or not that is a natural thing. Um, so whether or not it's it's nature or it's a nurture thing in that your life experiences have led you to a point where you are very, very resilient. But how do you how have you kept going when you have come up against um, I was going to say brick walls, but in, in so many cases, these these ice walls, how do you kind of nurture that level of resilience that you have? I think we all have the capability within us. You know, we don't necessarily um, have it or don't have it. We we discover it, you know, and we build it. It's something that is a response to our environments, to the stresses we, we, we face. And I think the last two years, especially in the pandemic, we've all had to be resilient. You know, we've all had to find ways through. Um, and I think actually that found, that resilience for me came from a foundation. And I think having that foundation of experience is, is the first step. Um, throwback, you know, when I was a lot younger, I mean, go back to when I was at school, um, I had a pretty normal start in life, I was brought up near Chester, my parents gave me everything I needed, but I had epilepsy when I was nine, which was a malform, but was the catalyst for a, a whole host of challenges, anxiety, panic attacks. Um, I've had a stammer ever since I've been able to speak, despite now being a speaker, um, I was relentlessly bullied all the way through school. I had no confidence. I hated sport. You know, all the components that would make you think otherwise about climbing Everest and, and taking on big endurance challenges. Um, but having those from a young age and then discovering the outdoors and that power of choice, the fact is that actually 
we don't always get to choose our challenges in life, but we can choose how we respond. That early mindset was the foundation, I think. And so as we go along through journey and we get the unexpected challenges that life brings, we keep raising the bar. We're raising that threshold. We find new ways of being resilient. Um, and so for me, it's all around taking advantage of adversity, you know, which I always have done and now help businesses to do the same. It's looking for the opportunity. And uh, when you have that mindset, you reframe everything. But I think overall, the key thing for resilience to me is around knowing your why, having that reason to get back up, having that reason to get out of bed when you just feel like you have nothing left to give, when you're on the mountain and you have no choice but to keep moving to safety. It's having a strong enough reason, really. And for me, I think that that reason is knowing that I'm capable of more, not wanting to let adversity win, really. I guess in some ways it's raising a middle finger to adversity and, and never settling for less. I like that idea. And I think that you should have that put on a T-shirt, personally. <laughs> I'm not um, sure the schools would book me if I had that. Well, no, I mean, that's a very good point, actually. But yeah. So um, what what I also love is is that the, the day that I realised that the only competition I had in life was the competition that I have with myself. Because, um, you know, like you, I grew up in a very similar background. You know, my, I, I, um, I went to a, to a lovely school, very academic school. And there was always this sense of, of having to compete with everybody else, whether or not that was academically or in sports or whatever. And actually, as somebody that wasn't supremely academic, but, but actually quite capable at other things, I always felt that, um, you know, that, that I had to try and compete with everybody because I wasn't quite as good as or, or the, the perception was that I wasn't quite as good as those people. And I spent a large proportion of my life feeling that I needed to compete with everybody else on and I needed to measure myself um, against everybody else. And actually, that's the biggest pile of BS in the world. And I think that, and you've kind of touched on it, that, that, you know, getting up in the morning and saying to yourself, how can I be better than the person I was yesterday or the next challenge or, you know, the, the very simplistic view is, um, you know, when I go to the gym that I am competing against myself. And there are days where I can't be bothered to compete against myself, but always pushing yourself to be better in line with how you were yesterday rather than comparing yourself to other people, I think is a huge motivator. So the next thing I wanted to ask you was about decision making. And there have clearly been some very big points in your life where you've had to make quite big decisions. Do you lie awake at night and go, that's the next thing I'm going to do? And this is how I'm going to do it. I just want to understand your decision-making process. I think sometimes the decision is made for you. and You have no control over that. And Everest, especially on both occasions, there was no opportunity to carry on. Um, and then it's a case of just focusing on what you can and can't control. With the challenges since then, I mean, challenges and adventure is, is, is a key pillar of my life. You know, if speaking and business and charity and everything else is going well, great. But when I don't have a project, um, my self-worth, my confidence, my passion, my energy, just it falters. And I think that's why I need to have something fairly regularly to, to really push myself and push the limits. And with the free peaks, for example, I was looking for something, something that's going to really scare the daylight out of me, but still feel achievable. Um, it's got to have that very fine balance. And it's the same with Everest, really. I mean, that idea came about when I was 14, when I was on my first hill walk in the Lake District. Um, and I remember just asking myself a question, you know, where is Mount Everest? And I don't really know where that question came from. But I came home, being a millennial, I went on Google. Um, <laughs> and I just became captivated. This was the ultimate thing. This was 
a way to fight back, to prove myself, to prove all the bullies wrong. And I guess that was a decision at 14 that I was going to stand on top of the world. You know, at 14, you make all sorts of decisions, good and bad, and you don't think much of them. Um, but this one was different. It was like a calling. It was a, a goosebump feeling that I'd never had before. Like I just knew deep down, trusting my intuition, that this meant a lot to me. And you can't forget about those things. Um, of course, at that point, I didn't have a plan. I didn't anticipate that four years later, I'd actually be at Everest Base Camp about to attempt the thing. Um, but I guess it's since then, when I've been looking for a challenge, it's kind of this since Everest, you know, that was my calling. I just knew I didn't have to debate the question. I just knew that was what I had to do. Since then, when I've been trying to find other challenges, I've had to treat it as a bit of like an entrepreneurial innovation process where I'm sort of testing ideas out. I'll I'll do some research. I'll look at what other people are doing. What can I do differently? How can I stand out? What's going to appeal to me? What's going to raise a lot of money? Um, what plays to my strengths? Um, and I'll, I'll come up with some ideas that excite me. I'll tell some friends. I'll tell some people close to me, get their opinion, because if they don't think it's ridiculous, then it's not going to get any attention. It's not going to raise money. Um, and that's kind of a bit of a quality control process. Um, and sometimes I'll be toying with things for weeks or even months, like not quite getting it. Um, I, have, I write down kind of a criteria, you know, a number of things it's got to do. It's got to have this, it's got to not have that. It's got to be this long, et cetera. Um, trying to make it fit. And eventually I get to the point when I get goosebumps or I get some kind of sudden intuition that, right, that's it. I just know it's that. And we climbed the UK. That was the um, the one I did in 2017 with all the county tops. Um, That was like my new Everest. You know, that was the first thing I'd done after just knowing I was chasing this big mountain. Um, Where I kind of created my own challenge, essentially. I took me ages to get to that one. But I remember talking about the finish line to a friend, sort of what that finish line was going to look like. And as I was talking about it, my arms were full of goosebumps. And I just felt this sudden, I can't describe the kind of rush of excitement. And he just looked at me and my friend and said, that's your why? And I knew it. And that was it. So for me, decision-making is about commitment. You know, everybody has goals and ideas and plans and things they want to do, but it's about commitment and burning the bridges. You know, when you set a date, things start to happen. You make yourself accountable. When you put it out, out in the world, when you tell people, I kind of do that as a bit of a, right, it's scary to tell people because then I have to do it. But if I don't do that, then it's not going to happen. So it's a bit of a, it's like emotionally blackmailing myself, really. But commitment is the difference for me between success and failure. And and I think that what you're doing is by telling people is that you're making yourself accountable because then in, in many ways, perhaps you feel that you you would let them down as well. I love this concept of the fact that there's some visualization in there in that you've so you know, what, what's it going to look like? What's the end going to look like? And you're yeah. creating that, that real excitement inside you and the gut instinct, which do you know what? I, I just think is amazing because I don't think I started to trust my gut instinct until I was in my late thirties and, and you're 25. And I'm sorry to keep going on about the fact that you, that you, that you are young. Um, but um, I think that as soon as you can start trusting your gut instinct, 
then the better life is going to be. Um, you know, the, the times where I think that I've made the wrong decisions are because I've kind of gone, actually, Sarah, what you're thinking inside, mm, I don't know, don't go with that. You know, even even little things about making sure I've loaded the dishwasher before my husband gets home, <laughs> it's a big thing. Um, you know, trusting your gut instinct is 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 really, really important. And yeah, and having that foundation of your why is um, is just so important too. So I grew up in the 90s. I was a teenager in the 90s and I went to university and got my first job at the, at the end of the, the 90s. And the concept of leadership then for us was, um, you know, particularly if you're a woman, was that very kind of shut off, um, slightly ballsy 80s concept of of leadership that was was kind of left over from the 80s. And I wanted to understand for young people now, what is your concept of what a great leader is and, and what does that leader look like? And what are the personality traits of a successful leader now for, for, for young people? I, I was always brought up with this concept of leadership is that loud, shouty figure, the person in charge, the person up front, the person ordering people and, you know, the the general in the army, the CEO of the business. And it, it was a very stereotype kind of macho type figure. That was all I really knew and was exposed to. I think as I've got older and got more aware and, and especially in the charity, you know, is and it's it's so much more than that. Um, in fact, my favourite definition of leadership is from um, a mutual friend, Emil Jurd, and it's about you know how a leader is somebody who achieves more than they could achieve on their own by engaging others in that clear, compelling purpose. And I, I love that. For me, that sums it all up. And I never really saw myself as a leader um, until I realised that actually, by having an influence on somebody by inspiring them to do something, to take action, then you're a leader. You know, I've always been that kind of quiet, introverted figure. With my stammer, for example, I would never be the person to speak up. But then somebody said to me, you know, about me being a leader, I thought, no, no chance. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not that loud, confident, authoritative figure. Um, but actually, all of us can lead. All of us can have that influence on people. Um, and that's where it's kind of evolved from there, really. It's that ability to actually um, influence others. And I think sometimes the, the quiet ones at the back can, can be the most powerful because um, they're the ones actually taking stock of what's going on. But also it does, I think it does take certain character traits. And I mean, for example, in the charity, although I've been a leader of that, um, we also need a leader to manage the operations, you know, because being the visionary and then also being the ops director and everything is very difficult. There's, there's, there's definitely a different skill set there. And my leadership skills could definitely take a lot of work. But I think that's why leadership has not, hasn't just got one face. It, it can mean something different to everybody. I would like to, my, my cat's just trying to break into the shed at the moment, which is irritating. And um, she's hanging off the door, which uh, people that are either watching or listening to this probably can't see, but she's literally hanging off the door. Um, and I think that therefore means it's probably a really good point to do the bit in the middle that I call the sandwich. Um, so my first one is, um, it centers around kind of nutrition. Now we know that you are an ultra marathon runner. You've done some of these epic challenges and I know that you have to feel, fuel yourself correctly when you do all of these kind of things. So I wanted to know what was your favorite kind of pre-workout or epic challenge snack? What do you- I won't say there's anything specific before. It's more afterwards. It's more having something to look forward to when I get back, you know. And I have, unfortunately, I have a massive sweet tooth. So I use that for sometimes for bribery where motivation is low. 
Um, I'm, in, I'm based in the Lake District and I'm very lucky that we have a lot of good bakeries around here, but I would generally leave something in my car if I want to get back. Generally, every day starts the same way, uh, and that's porridge. Like, I can't run or train properly unless I've had porridge with, you know, chocolate or fruit or peanut butter or something in it. Porridge and coffee, I don't perform well unless I've had those. So the the other thing is I know that some people, when they're out and about running or moving, like to have tunes to motivate them. Some people are very happy listening to their own breath and just listening to the sounds outside. Which kind of category do you fit into, tunes or not? There's a time and a place for both, and it depends so much on, on the on the situation, the environment. I mean, when I'm doing long training runs, you know, where I might be out for – you know, seven or eight hours or even less. Sometimes I just need a bit of music just to just to kind of change perspective. You know, I, I train on my own 95% of the time and I can get quite bored, even running in the mountains. Also, I just love listening to music. It sets the, it's a soundtrack for my life. It can create the atmosphere. You know, there is something very special about running downhill, listening to trance music at full pelt. And when Meatloaf died a few few months back, I remember running down in the Hellgills, which are close to me, like a really grassy, soft downhill at full pelt, listening to uh, Bat Out of Hell. And for me, it adds a whole new dimension to the experience. But when I'm racing, don't listen to music. Um, if I'm doing shorter runs, I definitely don't need it. You know, I think it, if I've had a busy week speaking or if I'm not feeling it, sometimes my my brain can't absorb anything else and I just need silence to listen to the birds to listen to and to enjoy that um if motivation's low sometimes i need the music just to distract me from from that but also like to listen to podcasts and audiobooks but that's when i tend to fall over <laughs> i uh biggest takeaway from that is that you know who meatloaf is i remember when meatloaf passed away now my background is um in rock radio and and rock music is is absolutely my bread and butter oh yeah I went into a local cafe with some friends of mine who are younger than me. And I said, it's a terrible day. Meatloaf's died and, and none of them knew who he was. Who inspires you the most apart from Meatloaf? I couldn't mention them all, but I think one of the most inspiring people is what I've met recently, only the other week, actually. Um, he's been a friend for a few years, a guy called Jeff Smith, who I was on Everest with in 2014. He went back in 2017 and actually summited when he was thinking he was 53 or 54, 53. Um, so obviously very different walks of life and different places in life. I think his his daughters are like the same age as me. But we became great friends out there. And Jeff continues to inspire me because he's just an absolute force of nature. He has created this charity called Big Moose. And he has such an energy for just getting things done. You know, he is the most inspiring leader that I know because he he's not necessarily a big, loud, shouty figure. But people just want to be part of whatever, whatever he does. People join it he can fill a room of people in a week you know we, I was speaking for his event in Cardiff recently for mental health awareness week and within a couple of weeks he's sold out a room of 280 people and I don't quite know how he does it but whatever he sets out to do people just join him he's like a pie piper because his vision his authenticity his power and his passion is so genuine and powerful he then has the creativity to make it happen regardless. How important is it to find a positive outlet for dealing with mental health challenges? Um, because clearly that's that's what you've done. Um, and you have kind of touched on it, but but you know, how did you find yours? I mean, was it just a case of of one day just getting up and going out and and realizing that that was what was gonna help you? No, and it's an evolving process, you know, and there are peaks and troughs. 
my medication, my therapy is exercise and spending time outdoors, particularly running and cycling. Um, running, I've discovered about probably 13 years ago. Um, and before that, it was just a bit of everything, rock climbing, cycling, hill walking, climbing, um, oh, everything. Um, but running has become my focus and probably the only sport that I'm probably built for or any good at um, after coming second to last in cross country at school. Um, <laughs> And I think the hill walking thing I, I discovered on that first, um, I think it was on that first hill walk in the latest trips when I was about 14. But actually prior to that, I was on holiday in Turkey with my mum. Again, when I, was, I would have been still 14 at this point. And I saw something advertised called paragliding. Quite an extreme sport. You know, this is a bit of a leap out of your comfort zone. And I saw that advertised. And I just, again, had this kind of urge, this calling that I had to do this. I was sick and fed up of being limited by all these challenges growing up and the people and the bullies around me. And I wanted just to rise above that and throw myself up a 7,000 foot mountain seems to be the way to do it. Um, but again, that was a life changing moment because suddenly I realized what I can do, what I am capable of. And when you raise the bar, you want to find the next bar and the next bar, and keep challenging yourself. So that's kind of what, what I did, but obviously close to home. Um, I was always cycling around the forest. I was walking my dogs. I just loved being in nature because that was where I found a safe space where I felt I belonged and um, put things in perspective. But then you keep needing to find the next challenge and running was the way of doing that. And to this day, you know, I still run and on a, on a, on nearly a daily basis you know and I think I, I although I found the outdoors by chance it's been my kind of natural health service and I have been more conventional therapies I've been on medication and and I'm still in that process but um for me it's about having a tool we all need that coping mechanism and without that things yeah, things aren't great I mean at the moment for example um I had COVID six weeks ago after doing a 100 mile run so a combination of those two together I wouldn't recommend 100 miles for immune systems, by the way, um, <laughs> has really floored me. And I'll be honest, it's been a real, real challenge because I've suddenly lost my my toolkit. Um, so having those the, those those things, whether that's, you know, running or whether it's, you know, cooking or spending time with the family or listening to music or whatever it is that gives you that release. We absolutely need to have that toolkit. Um, it's not a cure because it's always going to be challenges and things that throw us up but it's the tools that I think we use to manage them. So when we don't have access to those, we're more likely to respond using less helpful ways. And that was how I had an eating disorder because I couldn't run, I couldn't cycle. I got injured about eight years ago. Um, and so I lost that release. So I think that's the consequences of, of not having those tools. And in the pandemic especially, most of us lost access to a lot of these things. So that's why I think it was such a struggle. My fitness is is a hundred percent a priority for me. You know, it's the first thing that goes in the diary, and I think that that's a a very important point. Is that um, you know we're all very very busy people, particularly um, you know if you're leading. Um, and my husband always says to me, you know, how am I going to fit this in? And I said, well, it's it's a case of prioritizing. Really, um, is yeah, as I say, everything is for me. Um, if I'm going to the gym or I'm going for a run, I'm going for a walk or going on my bike, uh, it's all in the diary. So so that's a hundred percent a priority. And I think that. Also, I think that the first thing that you have to 
push through a lot to get to that point to realize that movement or being outdoors is the thing that's going to help you because the first few times you go out it it is really difficult Mm. um so so there's a good I found you know there's a good couple or, or, or even up to a month or more of where you're going why on earth am I doing this and actually, sometimes it feeds into, to, to, I found, into making myself feel worse. But I was so absolutely convinced that it would be the thing that, that would really support my mental health that I, I kept pushing through it. So it's not, a, it's not an instant miracle, is it? But, um, you know, you have to prioritize it and you have to push through that hard bit at the beginning, I think. I don't know whether or not we are, and clearly we've come out of this pandemic, whether or not we are suffering more with mental health challenges now as a world, or whether or not it's just that we talk about it more. And I don't know if you have an opinion on on that. Mm, really good question. I think it's the, the the big question. And I think it's hard to say. It really is hard to say because you know, when you go out to places like Nepal, where they're so distracted and disconnected from technology and the stresses that we have, um, inevitably, you know, they have, everybody has mental health in the same way we have, you know, our physical health. So I don't think there's any doubt that they still struggle with, um, you know, some of the same challenges we do. I mean, I've known Sherpas to be on antidepressants. You know, these are people living two, three thousand, you know, two, three thousand meters up in the mountains. Um triggered by you know life events and especially after the the earthquake people have suffered bereavements and lost their homes and their livelihoods and they've seen the trauma of you know pretty horrible stuff um and inevitably you know just because they're not aware of it doesn't mean they don't feel the same low mood and sadness and hopelessness that we can all feel but i do think now that it's more recognized and people understand the signs that actually you know when things are prolonged it's not just about sadness this could actually be a medical problem mental health you know mental ill health is a medical problem just like having a cold or a flu or you know a broken leg but at the same time i think it's that paradox of of anxiety where when you're aware of something you start to notice it so i've suffered a lot with you know health anxiety as well and for example um before a challenge before a big run i suddenly start getting all these weird symptoms we call it you know a taper tantrum and you become so fixated on a, on a risk, on a threat, that you can start to imagine it. And that's not to belittle it in any way. You know, I've been to A&E literally two weeks before a big challenge with random pains and chest pains. And, you know, I've had all the x-rays, I've had various things with my physio, and there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever. And of course, when I start the run, absolutely fine. So I think there is the risk that as we become more aware of it, we may start to almost overcompensate, if that makes sense. Um, but if you go out to some really remote parts of the world which haven't had the same exposure to it, I do wonder whether what their experience is, is of it. But there's no doubt that, like any humans, we we have mental health just, just as much as our physical health. And that leads us nicely on to what I still believe is the stigma that's attached to feeling mentally ill or or, or, or having a mental health challenge. How do we how do you think we overcome that kind of lingering stigma that is still attached to having a mental health challenge? I think it's getting better just by the nature of awareness and the amount of people now doing proper things about it, not just ticking boxes. Um, but it's always going to be there. I think like bullying in schools, I don't think you're ever going to get rid of it, um, sadly. Um, 
I think the amount of like, authentic conversations that are happening and, and people speaking out is certainly helping um, bit by bit. Um, I think part of it is a generational thing as well. A lot of a lot of we're hearing does tend to be, you know, with, with all respect from older generations. I find the people of my age and around me and below are so much more open to it now and accepting of it. Um, but essentially, you know, my grandma, for example, and, you know, my parents to an extent, um, don't quite have the same empathy as younger people. Um, and I don't think that that is partly in their DNA. It's the way they've been brought up and conditioned. And, and you know, that thing of, oh, just cheer up, you know, what have you got to be sad about? But perhaps they've been through world wars and they've been through things before. Um, it is going to be nearly impossible for them to fully empathise at the same level. I mean, I remember in the pandemic, my grandma, who's near, she's 90, was saying, you know, oh, well, it, you know, it, it, it's not as bad as it was in World War Two when, when that was happening. I was like, yeah, but the ground, this is a different virus. You know, you know, this is a different, a different situation. Um, and I think the only way to, to to try and balance that out while we make that kind of transition, which is going to take a long time, is just to keep having those conversations. And I think um, to normalise it is about the more people that can join that conversation um, and show that actually there is no image, there is no stereotype, it can manifest differently in everybody. Um, to show the variety of experiences, I think, is about having conversations and, um, and as you say, treating it like we would a physical illness. Um, I don't have a magical solution. I don't think anybody does. Um, but I do know the power of conversations. You know, for me, for example, um, I suffered in silence with bulimia and, you know, and oppression for about three or four years because there was this shame there was there was this shame about about it um because eating disorders were always seen as a as a female thing not for a not for you know uh an ultra endurance adventure an athlete and mentally strong as i as i saw myself and as i thought people saw me um but by reading an article in the guardian by another marathon runner who had the same thing enabled me to put my hand up and then i think by putting my hand up we create this positive multiplier effect where people are able to put their hand up as well um and you know now i'm speaking to you know 500 people in a room about something which i was breaking down in tears about many years ago um and it's not easy you know it's taken me years to get comfortable with that um but i think a lot there's, there's a lot we can do in society around changing language i think you know even even the way that we talk about mental health can stigmatizing as well so I think there's some small changes that we can all make in the meantime. I have um, a seven-year-old and I'm very conscious that she is growing up in a world that's that's probably different to the world that I grew up in when I was seven. Um, you know she is aware of social media and, and and you said it earlier you know when I went home and I wanted to look something up I'd go into our vast array of kind of Encyclopedia Britannicas but now you can go on Google and um, you know the, the the pressure that there is probably to look a certain way although I'm starting to see a shift in in that area which is super super positive Um, you know what can 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 I do and and can we do as as parents as mentors as teachers as guardians as whatever of young people how do we um <clears throat> a start those conversations with young people and impress upon them the fact that actually it's it's okay not to be okay and 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 to live with that and and to start those conversations and be aware that other people are feeling that you know how do we what what's your advice to to us as as 
as older people to be able to support younger people? Great point. And I think going back to your last question as well, what I wanted to expand on that is as leaders, we have the most important role to play in making ourselves vulnerable by sharing our own stories, by putting our hand up first, because as leaders, we then create a culture where other people are safe to do the same. And, you know, I often get the irony as a founder of a mental health charity that, you know, I don't ask for help. I struggle in silence. I burn myself out. I, I do all these unhealthy things that we, we're trying to, to fix because maybe I feel that sense of authority and responsibility. But actually, and we're seeing it all the time, you know, in in organisations and and you know, high profile, you know, high profile figures actually talking very openly and they get a, an outpouring of support. And they're the ones that we look up to. They give us that permission, I think, to 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 admit that actually we're having a tough time. Um, and we can't underestimate the power of that and the ripple effect that that has. So I think, you know, whether you're as a parent or you know, a teacher or whatever your role is, um, I think it's the, there's a few things that we can do and one of them is to be share our own, you know, to share our own experiences and vulnerabilities. I think also not to try and fix. You know, I love the quote by Stephen Covey is that, you know, the problem is we is we often listen to respond rather than to understand. And I know my parents in the past have said to me, you know, well, they because they care, they, they, they try to fix. But the problem is that can only make us feel worse and defensive. And then everybody just feels bad. So one thing we say a lot in the charity when people join our events is, you know, we're not here to fix you, but we're here to give you the space that you need. You know, we're not here to offer solutions. Um, we can't possibly understand how you're feeling. Nobody can possibly understand exactly how you're feeling because the world is different to you. Um, so that lack of pressure, judgment, expectation, you know, is really important. People can think that because they've had depression that your experience must be the same as, you know, as theirs. But actually, um everybody responds differently you know I'm quite high functioning I can still be on stage speaking to hundreds of people and running marathons and then be mentally in a really bad place whereas some people they just can't get out of bed so I think that lack that understanding um and empathy is the most important thing and patience you know if you force people to speak they will probably do the opposite um but it all starts with actually to say you know I'm having a really bad day too can open open up the floodgates I think and create a really powerful conversation um and just a reminder that actually this too will pass you know with, with my challenges especially in those tough moments um you're only as good as the team around you and uh I think being able to lean on those is, is really important as well some of the things I've picked up from our wonderful chat, Alex, and I'm, I'm so grateful to you. You have been blessed with just the most amazing wisdom, which I also think is probably your clear and compelling purpose. This gift that you have for, for being wise um, is, is something as well that I, I, I think should be driving you to. The natural health service. I absolutely love that. Alex also has two wonderful books, which um, I would highly recommend, Icefall and Another Peak. And then Alex is amazing charity mind over mountains thank you for having me to share a bit of the journey so far and i think just to reflect on that i I think i do feel that challenges give us an insight and as you said a gift we found a way through that maybe other people haven't found yet so my mission is to share that you know help people find the way to their own mountains and um and then keep on pushing the bar really thanks everybody 
Our podcast is the front door to so much more leadership wisdom. Please subscribe so you don't miss our next conversation and head over to our website, leader-connect.co.uk and sign up to our free newsletter, Essential Leadership Thinking, right into your inbox. Bye.